When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence. From the Aggie Sports Network, powered by Learfield IMG College, this is the Aggie Hour podcast, a bi-weekly podcast profiling Aggie athletics, sponsored by Coors Light. Here's your hosts, Adam Young and Steve Liddell. We welcome you, Aggie fans, to the fifth episode of the Aggie Hour podcast, sponsored by Coors Light. Adam Young, along with the GM of Admiral Beverage, Steve Liddell, here today for episode number five. It's a bi-weekly podcast that is released on Fridays at 9 a.m. on all Aggie social media platforms. You can listen to each show wherever you get your podcasts from, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and all of our audio content is on those platforms in addition to nmstatesports.com as part of our NM State Athletics Insider podcast series. And please rate and write a review on any of those podcast platforms if you enjoy the show. Great show ahead today. We're going to speak to a former Aggie Volleyball All-American who was inducted into the Aggie Hall of Fame in 2019. The all-time digs leader, Crystal Torres-Seniceros, will join us here today. And we're also joined by the president of Admiral Beverage, Greg Brown, will join us to talk about Pistol Pete's 1888 Ale and much, much more here on this fifth episode, Steve, of the Aggie Hour podcast. And we're coming off a great one. Episode four had Russ Bradbird and Joe Garza, and uh, it got us ready for Aggie men's basketball coming up soon, didn't it? I'll tell you what, uh, Adam, Joe Garza was off the off the charts. His uh, his career at Las Cruces High School, high school where he won a state championship, and then his playing days at New Mexico State, uh, the guy was lights out. Um, just a fabulous show. And then Russ Bradbird, probably he's my new friend. Um, fantastic um, uh, stories about his time in Ireland. He, he's a he's an author, a 14-year veteran of uh, college basketball as an assistant coach uh, for Coach Lou Henson and Don Haskins. Uh, just a fascinating guy. He's one of my top three most interesting human beings that I know on the face of the earth. But I'll tell you what, uh, today we're going to go really epic. Um, Crystal, a uh, fascinating story about her her background, how she went from a basketball player to uh, an All-American volleyball player at New Mexico State. And then Greg Brown, the president of Admiral Beverage, who uh, played in the Yale-Harvard game, the famous 1982 Harvard-Yale game that we'll talk about. He was also captain of the 1982 team and also uh, one of the originates of the Pistol Pete 1888. Uh, just really a fascinating. We're going to be talking about mortuaries today. We're going to be talking about uh, college football today. We're going to be talking about Yale, Harvard, Ivy League. And we're going to be talking about volleyball. So we're going to be all over the place. Get ready. We got all kinds of stories. So for the next, um, you know, 60 minutes, sit back, grab the popcorn, have a cold Pistol Pete with a little bit of Coors Light, and uh, get ready. 
And before we get to this fifth episode, Steve, what's new with Admiral Beverage? Hey, we're on a roll right now. Uh, Coors Light up double digits for the year. Um, we just got off, uh, you know, had a fantastic September. October is going to be epic. Uh, we're getting ready for Halloween. Uh, Halloween is uh, on a weekend this year, which I think is going to be really good. Uh, but uh, we're rolling right now, and uh, life is all good with uh, the ice-cold beer of Coors Light. All right, let's get right into it. The leadoff hitter on today's episode of the Aggie Hour podcast, sponsored by Coors Light. Some call her one of the best Aggies in program history. She's the all-time digs leader. She's an All-American, and she was inducted into the Aggie Hall of Fame in 2019. Crystal Torres Ceniceros joins us on the fifth episode of the Aggie Hour podcast, sponsored by Coors Light. Welcome back, Aggie fans, to episode five of the Aggie Hour podcast, sponsored by Coors Light. Adam Young, Steve Liddell, and we are pleased to be joined here today by a former Aggie Volleyball All-American. She is in the Hall of Fame here at New Mexico State as well. Crystal Torres-Ceniceros joins us here today. Crystal, thanks for doing this. Of course, of course. It's my pleasure. What are you up to nowadays? So these days I am a full-time stay-at-home mom. Um, I work. I was working as a, a physical therapist assistant part-time, but now I've got one, a 17-month-old and a baby on the way. So I stay at home. The, with the babies and the dogs and the cat. <laughs> so you have a handful. I do, yes. Yeah, it keeps me very busy, that's for sure. Uh, when talking about your career, I want to start going back to high school. We were just talking off the air. Uh, you enjoyed basketball more than you enjoyed volleyball, and you are local. You went to Mayfield High School. Talk about high school and uh, where you were athletically back then. So, yes, that's that's correct. Basketball was definitely my first love. Um I mean, I grew up playing basketball. Volleyball kind of wasn't available to me, I think, as, as a young kid until middle school, I think eighth grade. So that was my first introduction to volleyball at all. Um, so, yeah, I just grew up playing basketball. That was kind of, you know, what I did. That was my forte. I did really well there in that sport. And then um, once I got to high school, it was kind of, you know, something to another sport to play, another thing to keep me busy in the off season for basketball and um, did really well in both sports, thankfully. Um, but yeah, basketball was where it was at. And I think that definitely contributed a lot to how, how much success I had as, as a volleyball player as well, though. Do you, do you think, uh, Crystal, you had some like natural abilities in volleyball? Like, you know, maybe you had to really work hard in basketball, but did, did volleyball come natural to you? Oh, absolutely. I remember the, maybe one of the first few times of walking into the gym at Vista Middle School here in town. Um, and just tossing a ball up in the air and jump serving, you know, I just kind of was like, Oh, let's, let's try this kind of a thing. And, you know, I kind of just picked up a ball and we were, we were learning the skills at the beginning. And then I just flipped the ball up in the air, jumped up and, and hit a top spin serve, jump serving. And so I'm like, okay, this is kind of fun. You know, this is different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm I'm pretty good at this, but yeah, I I mean, athletically I've always been playing sports my whole life. So things have kind of definitely come naturally to me you know, since I can remember. I mean, I've always been out out and playing sports, so. How do the two sports differ? I mean, basketball, you're sharing a basketball, you're passing it. What did you find different of both sports, but basketball versus volleyball? Oh, man, that's a tough one. I mean, they're, they're extremely different sports. Um, one, you're running, and you're just, I mean, it's very, they're both very fast-paced, but in a different way. I guess it depends on how the the style of play that you have for basketball, which at Mayfield High School with George Maya, it was very fast-paced. So for me, they both were very similar in that regard. Um, the volleyball aspect of things, it's it's a little bit harder because I think you're not able to take as much control over the situation as you can maybe um, as a basketball player. So, you know, in basketball, in basketball game, you can say, give me the ball, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, and score. As a volleyball player, especially in my position as a libero, if if I don't cover that ground or if the ball doesn't happen to come to me, if they purposefully stay away from me, I you know I I can't really do too much about that. I got to depend on my teammates a little bit more. So th- that's definitely um, a big difference. I mean, not that not that you don't depend on teammates, of course, as a um, basketball athlete, but you know you can really step up and and take control of that a little bit more. I think. Did your basketball help your volleyball? Absolutely. In what ways? Um, well, I was just saying that I was a point guard, point guard, shooting guard in high school. Um, so I had really, really good court vision. I could see things 
kind of before they happened, I could, um, you know, just defensively, both defensively and offensively. And so I think that really helped me when I, once I finally got, you know, my feet wet in the volleyball world and got caught up to this, this, the speed and the pace of college volleyball, I mean, I could sit and just watch plays unfolding in front of me and it just made my job so much easier. And people would always comment about that when I played. They'd be like, you know, it seems like you know where the ball's going before, you know, the ball even knows. And I'm like, yeah, because, you know, you just got to pay attention and kind of see the play unfolding. And I would put myself in a position where then I could cover as much ground as possible and make my life as much easy, you know, as easy as possible, which then in turn made us successful. One of the things, Crystal, that I always notice with Coach Jordan is he always wants his liberos and his defensive specialists in a certain spot on the floor. Mm-hmm. And when they're not in that spot they're supposed to be in, he's not happy. Did you always right. feel like you were a step ahead in that regard and you knew where you needed to be on the floor and Coach Jordan knew that as well? I think so, but I think I think in some ways it's kind of funny because um, – so, yeah, there's a there's a position that you play as a libero and – kind of like your role, you know, on the team, just like any of the other positions. Um, but I felt like w- and when I was a player, I, f- I feel like I had a little bit more responsibility. So I think I was given a little bit more mm-hmm. court, you know, to cover that was mm-hmm. maybe not, you know, the typical, you know, part of the typical positioning that yeah. you would be in. But um, I mean, obviously, yeah, you want to set yourself up in a good position. And I think a lot of that contributes to being disciplined and coachable and, and trusting that your coaches know what the heck they're talking about, you know, to begin with, that you don't know everything. And so I think that all of those things kind of kind of came together and, and just, you know, created a good environment for me as far as being a, a really good defender. 2003 and 2004, those were your later years in high school, and that's mm-hmm. when Coach Jordan really started to get things rolling with the Aggie volleyball program. Did right. you take notice? Were you watching from afar? Were you watching up close? Did you feel like, okay, one day I want to play for them? Or was that even a thought for you? No, I had no idea. For me, it was at the time, I, like I said, I was a basketball player. And my goal was I was going to play basketball in college. Um, that was it. That was the end game. I was you know, working to get a scholarship in that way. And volleyball to me wasn't really you know, because I said it was kind of like a secondary sport for me. It was just kind of something fun to do. I had friends that played. I got out of off-season training for basketball. And, um, you know, I didn't play club. I didn't do any of that. And I really wasn't aware of NMSU uh, volleyball. It was mo- it was basketball all the time, 24-7 mm-hmm. for me. And so I was really surprised when they started recruiting me, actually. <laughs> it was very, 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 very taken back. And I kind of blew them off for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that process, because here, you know, your passion is basketball in high school. You want to play basketball in college. And somewhere you find out, man, you know, I might not be able to play basketball at New Mexico State, but, man, they are, they want me badly in volleyball. How do you transition to that mentally? Like, okay, I'm not going to play basketball, but I'm going to play volleyball. It's a team sport. I love it. Mm-hmm. But it's not my number one passion at the time. Right. What kind of tra- what kind of give me your thought process as an, as an 18 year old at that time? Well, you know, I was actually being recruited by NMSU basketball as well. There you go. Okay. So I was being recruited by NMSU, but I didn't feel comfortable playing basketball here um, at the time. I just it just didn't feel right. And then I had a couple of other you know D2 offers and right. that were kind of far away in small towns for basketball. But I think so. Ashley Hardy at the time and Mike, you know, they were very persistent and they would come. You know, they were recruiting me and they were like. You look bored, you look, you know, you look like you could have a lot of fun playing volleyball, but you, this looks too easy for you kind of a thing. And I just kind of kept blowing them off, blowing them off. And then, um, yeah, as the year went by, my senior year, you know, as it gets later in your, your high school career, it's kind of like, well, I started looking into it. I'm like, well, you know, NMSU is actually doing pretty good. And I'm originally from Hawaii and, you know, Hawaii's in their conference. So there's a possibility that I could get, you know, free free trips to go see family you and you, you know there was all these small little kind of yeah. incentives that came into play i saw that they were winning their conference and things like that and they, they were being you know becoming a very successful program so i think um actually being open to that towards the end was definitely what finally i was like okay i finally give in i'll give up on this basketball thing you know, um, I get to stay in town. I'm a local kid. My mom, you know, mom's side of the family's here. So there was, there was just a lot of little things that kind of added up to it being a good, 
a good fit. But at the time, I mean, I, I, w- I was like, I'm never going to play. Maybe I'll <laughs> play as a senior. You know, I've got – these girls are good because I would come and watch them play. I'm like, man, the girls that are in my position are only sophomores. They're a year older than me. I'm not going to play till I'm a senior, but we'll take a shot. <laughs> you know, we'll see what uh, happens. That's a great story. Yeah. That's great. You started at Libero your final three years, but you did mm. not start your freshman year. Yes, I did. I did technically start like as a defensive as a specialist, but not a libero, not the starting position as far as that goes. Yeah. What was the adjustment like going <laughs> from high school to college? You kind of just touched on it, how good they were, and, and the program was rolling then. Right. It. I mean, it was night and day. I mean, you go from any college sport, you know, if you get a scholarship and you go play ball somewhere for a university, you were the stud at your prospective high school. Then you get to the college scene and everybody's the stud from their high school. And so all of a sudden you're at the, the bottom of the totem pole and there's a lot of learning and a lot, a, a very large learning curve that happens. And I remember, you know, being at, in the gym and Alice Borden, Coy now mm-hmm. just rips a ball, you know, right past me. And I, it w- took me a half, like a second or two it flew by me and then I swung my arms out and I, I was just like, what am I doing? Like, this is so much faster, so much faster, so much harder. I mean, that the transition, it was, it was rough, but like I said, the co- being coachable and disciplined definitely helps. It's just a different speed. Mm-hmm. College, college volleyball to high school is just a different world. How, how much has volleyball changed today versus when you played? Is, is it a big change, a little bit of a change? Is it the basic, the game the same? I would say that from what I've seen, I mean, it's hard to tell with, you know, just generally the college atmosphere, you know, without being in it, but because at NMSU, I'm able to kind of, you know, I can show up to practice if I want. I can kind of get a little bit more personal with the girls and still with coaching staffs and compare that to when, when I played, I think, I think things were a little bit tougher back then. Um, I think there's maybe a sense of entitlement at times for the newer generations, you know, like an expectation of what they deserve versus what's earned and what's worked for and, and that kind of thing that the amount of respect that was around back in the day when I played, um, which sounds, you know, absurd because it's like, it's, yeah, you know, it (laughs) seems like it was just a few years ago, but it's kind of interesting that it's been so long now. You go back to your basketball career at at Mayfield, George, um, Mm -hmm. Hall of Fame coach, uh, guy I've known for a long time. Uh, he's tough. He's oh, a tough yeah. coach. Um, how did he, you know, you played for him for several years. How did he prepare you for what you were going to face in college at the volleyball level? Oh, I mean, I was absolutely foundational um, playing for him. Uh, again, there was just a level of respect for that man um, and what he taught us, not only as athletes, but just as young women and um, just people, you know, human beings in a society and how, how to act and how to, you know, hold yourself and holding yourself accountable and just being a good teammate. You know, there's so many things that I learned as a high school basketball player um, there. And it helped that the girls that I played with, we, I mean, we played, we were on a traveling team, you know, when we were in middle school. So I had been playing with these girls since I had, you know, been in sixth grade all the way up through um, once we got to Mayfield and it was all the same girls in Mayfield. So we were like sisters, you know, we were very tight, very, very tight knit group of girls. And we worked hard and we worked hard for coach Maya. And, you know, there, there were not so easy days, of course, like any situation. You gotta be tough skin. Absolutely. You gotta be tough skin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That definitely prepared me for, for Mike here at NYU. That's for sure. <laughs> 2006 crystal, you take over as the starting libero. When you had that position and that was yours, did your confidence start to grow collegiately? I mean, a little bit, but there's always that, you know, nothing's ever for certain. And on any given day, you know, your teammates can really just, um, I don't know, just get in the zone and just roll with it. And Mm -hmm. so, and I think the unique thing about that with my teammates, specifically Jordan Bostic and Bree, um, who's Bree Acri, but Roy now, and then Mm -hmm. um, Grantham, but they they were um f- you know phenomenal teammates they when i came in and i didn't have a clue they really took me under their wing and taught me everything you know they were they were very you know patient with me they taught me everything that they knew 
And then from then on, it was just a, a matter of who could do it better. And there was always, you know, you're always kind of on edge. You're like, oh man, if I, you know, if I mess up, if I'm, yeah. if I'm not consistent, I'm not guaranteed anything. And so I think it took a little bit still, you know, even after that first year of starting, you're still, you're still kind of, you know, in a way there's a humility there where it's, it's not guaranteed, but I'm still, no matter what, I'm still here for the team. And if I can do this job, then great. If it's my teammate that does it better then great, I'm going to be there to support them and cheer them on. But you better believe I'm going to yeah. go after that spot again, you know, if, if that were, if that were the case. So that 2006 season, you guys started 29 and one, you were nationally ranked. It's your first year starting at Libero. Do you feel like that's the best team you were on here? Oh, my goodness. I know it's hard because you were part of three NCAA tournament squads. Yeah, that that is a really tough – I would say between the two years, so the 2006 and 2007, I would say, mm-hmm. are probably the, our best that were – are pretty neck and neck as far as the best seasons that we had. Because, yeah, I mean, I, right, you know, on paper it might it's be hard. it might be easy to say, oh, yeah, that one's yeah. the better, you know, but, it's yeah, it's just difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to, to compare the two. Was 06 extra special, though, because you went to your first NCAA tournament? Definitely, yeah. And I think that's – I mean, it's some, it's a goal that every every student-athlete has. You know, you want to go in the postseason. You want to not only go to the NCAA but win. And it it was really cool to be able to do that at a young age. You know, I didn't have to wait until my senior year to go to my first, you know, NCAA tournament, you know, game or anything like that. So it definitely had um, just – a there's a special, a special feeling with that, but again, it wasn't, it was, it wasn't enough. I was mm-hmm. you still hungry for more, and I was grateful that I had, you know, some, a little bit more time to try to accomplish that. So, last game you ever played at the NCAA oh. level. I mean, what do you remember about that? You know, that that last game. I mean, just you gave yourself four years. You're an All-American. Um, coming from Mayfield High School. I mean, just epic career. What do you remember that that last college ga- uh, event? I think I remember, you know, you, there's always this feeling of not, of, of still not, you know, knowing that there was more to be done, um, and knowing that you're you were capable individually and as a team. You know, there's al- there's always a little bit of a letdown um, in that regard, but at the same time, it's there's also you know it's a two-sided coin. You get you get the satisfaction of knowing you're you've accomplished you know goals that you've set and everything else was kind of a cherry on top kind of a thing so it would have been amazing to continue you know to to win and and honestly I remember you know just competing at that level with a with teams that you know up you we're talking they were in the final four I think mm. the year before and competing with them you feel pretty good about that so it wasn't the worst you know the worst situation to 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 walk out of, but it's always hard. It's always hard, and it's always hard to cl- close to know that that's closing the chapter of your your collegiate career. And it, it seems like your career you just grew each year. Right. The, the team grew each year. You grew as a as a human being. You also grew as an athlete. Yes. And um, why was that? I mean, you you peaked out your senior year, all American. Did you just keep getting better and better and better as you as you went along in your college career? I think so. I mean, I was I was very driven. Um, I was, I mean, like I had I've said before, I, I just was never satisfied. I was always, and not to be, not in a way of like you know hungry for accolades and you know whatever. It was I just want to be better. I want to be great. I want to be better than anybody else out there because I'm so competitive and I love this sport, and so. I think that, I mean, was the the fire under me, you know, that just, that just, you know, kept me going forward, kept me wanting to improve in practice every single day. I think I knew, you know, that my time was winding down. And so I, in the back of my mind, every single day when I went into practice was the thought of, you know, every repetition counts and I need to get better today because I, my time's running short. And so I just need to be great today. I need to be great tomorrow. I need to be great the day after that. And whatever that means, you know, is what is what's going to happen. Now, when you were named uh, in the Hall of Fame, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, Adam, but I think our good friend Steve Haskins went in with Crystal. Yeah, 2019. Yep. Yeah, and uh, Steve was on the show a, a few weeks ago. 
how big an honor was that? And when you, you, you took a step back and you're like, what a, what a career I had. Right. You're a humble person, obviously. All-American, but I'm in the Hall of Fame. That's for the next thousand years. Right. I mean, what'd that feel like? It's very, very humbling, even more so, and very sobering. And, you know, when I looked at the class that I was inducted with, I, I mean, it's, like you said, you just kind of take a step back and you're kind of in awe, you know, to be even standing up there with some of those other fellow athletes or coaches that have accomplished so many great things. I Yeah, sometimes I'm just in, in awe. What were you doing when you got the call? Um... I can't, I think I was feeding my baby. Or <laughs> I can't, uh, yeah. Hey, can you call me back can in like you, 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, we, we're a little busy here, so. Oh, that's yep, great. Yeah, so I think, she, no, I was not feeding my baby. I was not, I was pregnant at the time, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. I think that was, yeah, it was a different phone call. W- were you surprised? Of. Um, Kind of. Uh, you know, I was, I was, we were just talking before that people, people have been talking about, you, you, you should be in the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame this, Hall of Fame that, your career was this, and, and then just knowing the statistics that I still, you know, have records for and whatnot, but there's no, there's never an expectation, you know, I'm not like, oh, I deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, I deserve this, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, I had this great season, you know, great career there at, at NMSU, and there's talk about Hall of Fame, but if it happens, great, if not, that's unfortunate, you know, but, you know, whatever the end result is, is the end result, so... When you look back at your career, Crystal, the Hawaii matches, oh, especially at the Pan Am Center, even Las Cruces High School that mm-hmm. one year, are those the matches you remember the most? Definitely. Um, and I think, I mean, for multiple, like I mentioned before, I'm originally from Hawaii, so being able to go and play there and my, having you know fans in the in the crowd, my family, it's just a different. It's just fun, you know, It's and the atmosphere playing against Hawaii, whether, yeah, where, I mean, you could be playing outside or whatever it is. We just became such a big rivalry with each other mm. that it was so much fun, and it was even better to beat them because, you know, that's a powerhouse team, and to know that we were able, capable of beating them was amazing, and to do it multiple times was amazing. And when you were around, too, the Aggies were consistently top 25, sometimes mm-hmm. top 20 in the country in attendance. Right. Uh, what do the fans mean to you, and how important were they to the success that you and your team had back then? Oh, my goodness. I cannot say enough about the fans. And even still to this day, there's some good friends of ours, of mine and my, my husband, my mom. Um, I still keep in touch with some of them. But aside from, you know, all of the behind-the-scenes work that, there's you know you got your coaching staff and then you've got all the the people that work behind the scenes to make the games you know kind of roll the way they're supposed to and organizing everything but the fans are just I mean incredible people and I I really am grateful for a lot of those those friendships that have been developed I mean I would go out of my way to just get to know these people because it's like you don't have to be here you don't have to you know be cheering us on the way you do that and supporting us the way that you do but it's just amazing you know, to have that support here in town. I mean, I've always said I've just been, I've been so grateful for the fans, for sure. Um, even still to this day, I will tell them, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just so grateful for what you guys did back then and even still today for these girls. We mentioned Coach Jordan's name a few times earlier. Mm-hmm. What did he mean to you during those four years and how did he help your progress? You know, Coach Jordan... I mean, it's different when I look back in hindsight, of course. In the moment, you know, he was a really hard coach to play for, but he knew his stuff. And so for me, especially not being a volleyball player, I came into the program knowing I didn't know squat. You know, this guy is a professional at what he does. He knows what he's talking about. So I was just like, okay, coach, whatever you say. As I got as I got better, um, we may have had a difference in opinion about you know where I should have been standing or you know decision making that I maybe just didn't go along with. But there was always uh, there was never any you know hard feelings or anything because we're both out there doing the same you know going after the same goal. Now it's kind of it's kind of a different you know perspective when you're you know a few years out you can look back and and kind of appreciate I think even more so um, the type of coach that he was and that he is. And just the knowledge base that he has and just how much of a, you know, volleyball, like he's a chess player, you know, he's really good at what he does and he can see things and he knows what he's talking about. And so 
um, I think just submitting to that as an athlete right away helped me, um, you know, it was just instrumental because he taught me everything. I mean, I didn't know, <laughs> like, didn't know I was just kind of winging it in yeah. high school, you know, but then I come to college and you gotta, you gotta pick it up pretty quickly. So I gotta ask her cause she's a volleyball player, vertical jump. Mm-hmm. How many inches? Oh gosh. I don't know what it is now. <laughs> um, or what it was even. I mean, I played outside hitter in high school, so it must have been you can you can you, you can go, yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. We, we got to ask that question on yeah. volleyball. You know? I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the actual the actual height, but I can hold my own. All right, definitely. all right. <laughs> the position libero. Mm-hmm. Where does that word come from? I think it's Italian, if I'm not mistaken. I'm gonna say it's Italian. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. Sure. I'm not 100 sure. I gotta look that up. We might, yeah. How I did feel that, like that I name know that. come about, libero? <laughs> I'm not sure. Coors Light six-pack, rapid six questions for Crystal. Oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah, I know. And, uh, all right, here we go. Who is your biggest influence in your life? My biggest influence in my life? Currently, I would say it's my husband. It's a good answer. I've been married 35 years. That's a, that's a good <laughs> that's answer. That's a good answer. Oh, did I win the, the family jeopardy or family uh, feud there question you, there? There you go. <laughs> I'm a college volleyball player uh, prospect. What advice would you give me? going into college to play volleyball be coachable be coachable be coachable absolutely you don't know anything be coachable and disciplined that would work for me because i I do know nothing (laughs) um where do you see yourself in 10 years from now 10 years from now i would say well we've got two we got one kid a year and a half almost a little girl we have a little boy on the way so I'll be busy with them, obviously, hopefully with sports and whatnot, um, and hopefully be involved in coaching in some in some way, shape, or form and playing myself, hopefully, <laughs> still. I, I like I it. Hope, I would hope so. Um, one thing you always did prior to playing a volleyball match. So I, w- I was pretty superstitious, so I would wear the same clothes, kind of do the same routine. But uh, I don't know how many people know this, but I used to write, be great on my hand before every match mm. so every time i would look down like you know if i got in a slump or something like that i just looked at my hand be great like okay this is that's our goal kind of uh, reset yourself refocus right right i like that yeah be great be great be great all right number five one person you would like to meet and why one person i would like to meet oh my goodness does it any time frame doesn't matter does it anybody, matter yeah. hmm Maybe Michael Jordan. Michael Good Jordan. Answer. Michael Jordan. I would now, now we're gonna I'm ask with you why. on that one. Yeah. Now, now we're going to ask why because he is the GOAT. Well, I mean, yeah, this guy. I've, I've only made it through a few of his um, of the episodes of his documentary, so I'm still working on that. So maybe I'm, maybe my answer might change after I find out more about him in that regard. But, yeah, just to hear his, his story personally, you know. And I met him one time. It was on a Gatorade trip. We spent three hours in one of his restaurants in Chicago years ago. Uh-huh. Great guy. That's what I hear. Great guy. For three hours, um, he does smoke c- cigars like it's going on style. Right. But great guy. Just a great guy. That's amazing. And um, ask him anything you want. Yeah, it was unbelievable evening, but he is the goat. Yep. No doubt. Yep. Number six, you're on an island by yourself, and there's a Coors Light waiting for you. It's a can, a bottle, or a draft beer. What are you grabbing? Probably a bottle. Bottle of beer. Mm, there you that's go. That's been the common bottle. answer, I think. Well, yeah. You know, we let off with Mario. Mario was all about bottles. Yeah. And, <laughs> but that's good. Hey, I learned a lot today. Yeah. And I, and I got to look up that position, that Italian word, where that came from. Hey, she's the all-time digs leader, All-American, Hall of Famer, one of the best to ever do it. And uh, Coach Jordan, when talking about her, just can't stop raving about Crystal Torres. It, it, unbelievable nice story. I mean, yeah. from basketball to volleyball to uh, – Mother. Motherhood now. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And hopefully she'll follow in our footsteps. We'll see. Crystal, thanks for joining us. Go Aggies. Thank you. Aggie up. All right. That's Crystal Torres-Ceniceros. When we come back, Greg Brown, the president of Admiral Beverage, will join us on Episode 5 of the Aggie Hour podcast, sponsored by Coors Light. We are very excited about this guest here on Episode 5 of the Aggie Hour podcast, sponsored by Coors Light, Adam Young, Steve Liddell, Pleased to be joined here today by the president of Admiral Beverage, 
Greg Brown is our guest here on the fifth episode of the Aggie Hour podcast sponsored by Coors Light. Greg, thanks for joining us on the podcast here today. Good to see you again. Well, thank you, Adam. It's good to see you. It's been a few months, so this is going to be fun. Yeah, it will be, and I know you're pleased to be a part of this as uh, Coors Light is a sponsor of the Aggie Hour podcast, which is pretty cool for you guys. Yeah, that's been a great relationship. Uh, I get phone calls from Mario at night saying we don't have a display in the Walmart, and uh, he, he puts a lot of pressure on us mm-hmm. to push the, the Coors Light, which means he's a great partner, and we love it. Well, let's begin by talking about the official beer of the Aggies, which is Pistol Pete's 1888 Ale, which was launched in August of 2017. Do you remember, Greg, when Mario first came to you with this idea? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Mario, as we all know, is an extremely passionate person and uh, has a lot of enthusiasm. And so he met with the ownership of uh, Bosky. And, you know, Bosky, they're they're pretty sharp guys, too. They're from uh, state. They went to state. They make unbelievable beer. And they... They came up with this idea, and uh, then they came to me like I had any choice and said, what do you think, shouldn't we do this? And they were so passionate and so excited about it, and they made the beer, and the beer tasted fantastic. Mm-hmm. And because of it, uh, I had one choice, and the answer is, mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to sell it, and we're going to sell a lot of it. What do you remember about that, Steve? Yeah, you know, as Greg was saying, you know, uh, Gabe, who uh, is the main owner of uh, Bosky, uh, New Mexico State grad, uh, he brought the concept, uh, great concept, tied in with New Mexico State and, and athletics, and we just jumped on board. And next thing you know, we, we're pushing the draft everywhere throughout uh, our market. Uh, we're selling at football games, basketball games, baseball games, and the stuff is just you know taking off. The blonde ale, I mean, mm-hmm. it, is, it, is, it is smooth, it is drinkable, and it is poundable. Yeah, and it's only been around for a couple of years, Greg, but it's become really well-known around the state. And I know it's a cool thing for you guys, too, because you're also helping out an athletics department that is strapped for cash a little bit as well. And this is an income thing for Mario and his crew. Exactly. And uh, I was really, really proud when uh, Mario mentioned to me the other day that it's one of his top uh, fundraisers. Uh, The money he receives from Bosky is one of his top fundraisers, and it's because uh, Bosky makes great beer. It's because uh, Mario is passionate about it, and he, he he's pushing it hard. He's pushing us. Uh, we got it all over the state, and uh, uh, we're doing a good job. We're executing against it. It's fun. It's a fun beer to sell. Yeah, and I tell you, it's got a lot of momentum. So we're we're excited, and we'll just keep building on it. I'm going to tell you what we we got one of the best guests we're ever going to have today. Uh, he's my boss, so I've, I've got to be careful today. But, I mean, the reason that we brought him here today is the guy grows up from in Southern California, grows up at a mortuary, mm-hmm. his dad, um, played baseball with Tony Gwynn in high school, played uh, at Mater Day, which is probably the best high school football program in the company, uh, in, the, in the country, was played in the Harvard-Yale game. This guy went from Southern Cal all the way to the East Coast, played at Harvard, was a Harvard captain his senior year, which he's going to get into. And then when he had nothing to do at Harvard, the guy plays baseball and throws a no-hitter against Princeton. <laughs> so we're going to get into a lot of fascinating background of this guy because he's all over the place. Yeah, Just incredible. He's had a tremendous career uh, at Admiral Beverage. He, he worked uh, at Gallo for 14 years. But the background and the things that he has seen in his life is just incredible. And I'm going to tell you, one of the most pressured jobs that he's ever had to do was the night before his senior year as captain of the Harvard football team playing against Yale. He either was going to go down as the captain who lost or the Mm. captain who won. Mm. Probably the most pressure point of his life. And I know he's going to tell some fascinating stories about that. So let's get into this thing. Well, thank you, Steve. Greg, what was it like growing up in Southern California? Well, uh, I got a a very interesting family. We grew up in Orange County, and we were surrounded by oranges, orange groves. Mm -hmm. And uh, my oldest brother, Vince, played baseball. And uh, he's 6'5", 270, just like me. Uh, Younger brother played baseball. And Garen, the youngest, played baseball. And the reason being is we'd all go out, you know, back then uh, doors were unlocked, but your mom would shove you out during the day and say, spend the day outside and don't come back until it gets dark. 
and us four boys who weren't really had the body types to be uh, uh, baseball players or pitchers, we'd go out and throw oranges at each other. And so uh, uh, we probably all threw about 92 to 93 miles per hour with a lot of accuracy. My oldest brother, Vince, uh, interesting story, he uh, – uh, he was just a, he was a man. He went to modern day high school, number one football team in the nation for the last mm-hmm. 10, 10 years. He, he shows up there. He, he's benching 350 as a freshman. Well, he has a couple ACL injuries, and uh, because of it, he has to quit football. He becomes a shot putter, all-American shot putter, best, best ever in California. Went to uh, Alabama and uh, uh, was an uh, all-American shot putter at Alabama. His son, Tommy, 6'7", 340 is now uh, offensive guard at Alabama. My younger brother, Mark, got drafted in the sixth round by the Reds and uh, went and played at San Diego State. My youngest brother, Garen, uh, played football, baseball at Modern Day, then came played football at UNM, wow. met the Maloofs. His roommate <laughs> yeah. was uh, Phil Maloof, and that's why I ended up in New Mexico. But the fun part about growing up in a mortuary is you can bring all your friends to the mortuary without your dad knowing about it. And you'd go tell ghost stories in the casket room. And, uh, I mean, the people would be flipping out, and the girls would want to hug you, and that was sort of the agenda at the time. (laughs) But uh, at one point, one of my friends told their parents that we tell ghost stories in the casket room. And then uh, uh, my friend's father told my dad about the casket story, and so that got shut down. (laughs) We're not doing that anymore. That was the end of that, huh? Yeah, we're done. <laughs> you played baseball with Tony Gwynn, huh? Yeah, this unbelievable story. We played in Long Beach in a, a weird league called Connie Mack. Mm-hmm. And so modern day was stacked. We we had two guys on this team that uh, went and uh, pitched for San Diego State. We had five guys on the team that played Division One football. We had Bobby Meacham that started for the Yankees for mm-hmm. several years. And so we had this stacked team. We were really young, playing against older guys. And um, we won the league in Long Beach. And now we have to go to Stockton for the national championship. And, and it, it was the weirdest thing in the world that if you win the league, you get to pick one player from another team to join you. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this one team that had two guys that I could never strike out. And uh, uh, so we're who should we pick? And and well, we got to pick the older brother. We don't want to uh, embarrass him because his younger brother Chris uh, played pro ball also. And so Tony got to play on our team, and uh, uh, he went 19 for 22. He was he was an introvert, so he just sort of hung out at the end of the bench. And I'd go down and I'd say, "Hey, you want some Copenhagen?" Because he chewed a lot of tobacco. Uh-huh. That, that uh, that's sort of the famous story about his demise. And so he chewed tobacco, and then, you know, pretty soon we realized that he's a special baseball player. And we're like, Tony, you're going to San Diego State to play basketball. Well, they might let me play baseball also. And, and when the tournament was over, because he dominated and we won the national championship with, because of Tony Gwynn and Bobby Meacham, uh, there was like 40 scouts there just banging on him, trying to sign him. And it, it was really cool. He, he was uh, at one point, uh, I was talking to Tony. I go, it seems like you can hit the ball wherever you want. And uh, he goes, yeah, I can. And I go, can you get a double down the left field line? I have a bunch of my buddies are, you know, right, right down the left field line. Can you, you think you can get a double? Oh, I, I can. So he smacks the ball down there. And he was pretty fast back then because he, he, he was really fast when he entered the league. He was thin. And so he, he could have got a triple, but he stopped at second. And we're all laughing. And the coach goes, why are you laughing? He goes, he wanted a double. <laughs> so he didn't go for the triple. <laughs> Yeah, he was amazing back then. Tell me a little bit about your, your high school career, and then how did you end up at Harvard? How did that happen? So um, I, I played, I played uh, all three sports at Modern Day High School, and I was the Orange County Athlete of the Year. I was all CIF in football and almost all CIF in baseball. Basketball, I just sort of hung out, had fun. And um, I got recruited in football by UCLA and Stanford, I got uh, appointments at Army, Navy, and Air Force, and uh, I had scholarship offers from uh, uh, UCLA and Nevada, and I was a young, naive kid. I had no idea what I wanted to do in life, and I was having trouble making decisions, and then I got accepted to Harvard. And one of my mentors, Father Harris, the the pastor and uh, uh, 
president of modern day walks down the hall and says, you got accepted to Harvard. I go, yeah. Well, you got to go to Harvard. I go, really? Yeah. You, no one turns down Harvard. Really? Okay. Well, that, that's where I'm going because I can't make up my own mind. <laughs> and so he made up, he, he made my decision that day. And my dad, of course, is like, you're telling me you could go to Annapolis and they'll pay you to go there. And then uh, you're going to go to Harvard, and I got to pay for <laughs> you to go to Harvard. But it turned out my dad had a better college career than me. He'd go to the games and drink with all yeah. my roommates in the stands. And <laughs> it was a pr- pretty neat experience, uh, the football experience at Harvard back then. We were Division One back then, and it was yeah. pretty cool. Now, your first year at Harvard, were freshmen allowed to play varsity? No, no. How big an adjustment was it to go from the West Coast to a bunch of elite East Coast guys, and you're from the West Coast. How big an adjustment was that? It, it was tough, and especially because I was naive, and, uh, you know, I really never traveled, and I, I was homesick, and I show up, and I go in, and there's 100, 100 freshmen on the team, right? And I walk in, and I was all CIF. I played in the Shrine football game against John Elway in L.A. at uh, the Rose Bowl. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was a real deal. And I walk in, and there's my, my position, uh, right tackle. There was four names of guys from the East Coast, and then I was the fifth stringer hmm. against freshmen. You know, it wasn't against the seniors. or Right. And I'm like, man, I got, I got job here. This is not good. <laughs> I come out here, and all the East Coast guys, they have never even seen me play, and all the East yeah. Coast guys are in front of me. But after, after two weeks in training camp, I was a starter, you know. But it, it was – it was a lot of fun playing freshman football. I can tell you, I I, I started becoming a man back then, and I, I was able to throw people around, which was fun. How hard was it, Greg, to juggle multiple sports? It's one thing to do that in high school, but then in college, when you're at an academic school as well, like Harvard, how hard was that? It was very hard, and uh, I, I can tell you that Harvard takes a lot of pride in the fact that hardly anybody fails, hardly anybody leaves. And so if they sensed at any point that I was falling behind, they were on me like crazy. And they were on my coaches and, and you know, hey, you know, Greg didn't show up to class. I get beaten up and I have to run laps. And so there was really no opportunity to slow down. And uh, you couldn't go at 80 miles per hour. You always had to go 110. And so that's why I survived. And then baseball's terrible, right? Uh, you play six games in a week and you're traveling on the bus. But mm-hmm. at least I don't get – car sick and so I was able to study on the bus which helped me a whole lot compared to some of the other guys on the team did you have a favorite sport among the two baseball baseball was more fun and football I played because I couldn't quit you know my friends would have been mad at me at modern day I went out freshman year we're uh, from back then a poor family because grandma owned the mortuary my dad didn't make much money so I went out for the team and all my friends are on the team and I'm terrible I don't know how to put the helmet on I don't start my sophomore year, I don't start. My junior year, I don't start. And uh, then all of a sudden, things, my body started changing. I started growing up. And I can remember to this day that my football coach, Coach Cochran, he walks by me in the weight room. He goes, hey, congratulations. I go, what? Congratulations for what? He goes, you're going to be all CIF, all state this year. And I start laughing. I go, <laughs> I haven't started one game. And I'm not bitter. I haven't, I haven't complained to you. I haven't started yeah. one game. He goes, you're going to be all CIF. And I don't know what he saw, but I dominated that year. And that's what uh, put me in a new level. What what made that high school special, uh, Greg? I mean, a lot of history, but a couple Heisman Trophy winners went to that high school. What did you get out of that high school when you when you graduated? I mean, yeah. What key learnings? Well, the, the teachers are unbelievable. The families are unbelievable. And back then, it was truly families. You know, people, people uh, modern day, when I was there, modern day, you guys recruit. No, no, we don't have to recruit. And by the way, if you're a good athlete, you probably want to go to modern day because you have a chance to go play college. I would tell you today, though, that there's a lot of recruiting going on. Is uh, uh, you know the second string quarterback from Alabama was dominating in L.A. and uh, last year he transfers to modern day and uh, he killed it. And he he might be the third Heisman Trophy winner from uh, from modern day. But uh, there's a lot of recruiting going on in California, public schools and private schools. It's crazy. Now, when you went when you went to Harvard, were you planning on playing baseball, or did you just kind of like, oh, I'm gonna just play baseball? Also, they didn't they didn't know I played baseball, and uh, uh, 
I, I was like, you know what? I, I, I just want to try out for the team. And, and we were, when I was there twice, we were top 30 in the nation. We were really good. One game, twice. One game from uh, the World Series. Back then, they didn't have the super regionals, you know, uh, that Birmingham has to go through. Uh, we, we'd meet in Maine. There'd be uh, uh, eight teams, fight it out. You win, you show up, you play Cal State Fullerton or UCLA or whatever. You know, there's mm-hmm. six or eight teams out there in Omaha. So I, I, I did – I went out the first day, and uh, the coach put me on the mound, and I was probably – I was so pumped up, probably throwing 95. <laughs> and uh, wow. he's like, I've never had a guy throw this hard. He goes, but you're – your control is terrible. Yes, sir. <laughs> he goes. Uh, he, he goes. You have a bad slider. I go. Teach me a slider. And that, then, I mean, I ended up with a spectacular slider. I, I would. I would aim for the guy's butt, and he'd be on. He'd be on his back, and it'd be a strike. So t- tell us a little bit about the famous Princeton no hitter. So uh, it's so famous that uh, my my good friend Steve Lydell's saying it went against Princeton, but it was actually Penn. Penn. Penn? <laughs> Good for you. you, you fact check. Yeah. It, it was Penn, and uh, uh, and there there probably is an asterisk because back in college, back in those days, it, on a Sunday, they wanted Ivy League uh, students to get back to study. So it wasn't a nine inning game; it was a seven inning game, and we played a double header, right? So we'd start at 10 a.m. and we did the first game, and then uh, you know then the next game was at noon, and we did that game. And I had the second game, and uh, uh, I probably threw 85 pitches, right? And uh, uh, after the game, the umpire comes up and says, you better ice your arm. I go, well, thank you, but why did you say that? He goes, there's no way every pitch can be a slider and your arm's not sore. So one time in my life, whatever happened, every ball was jumping, and, and he thought every pitch was a slider where I probably wow. threw – 12 sliders. It was just jumping, you know. <laughs> and I probably threw 92, 93 back then, which is nothing compared to today, today but back then that was that was fast. Wow. The Harvard Yale football series. How yeah. important is that to people? Well, that's the only thing that counts on the East Coast. They call it the game. Uh-huh. And uh I guess Michigan and Ohio, they would argue with me or uh, Cal and Stanford would argue, but it is the game and it's called the game and the way it, it's funny is uh, I was the 109th captain, first ever from California, and uh, you take a picture with the Yale captain. So during baseball season, the Yale captain um, comes over to Harvard because it was going to be a Harvard game, and we, we meet in the locker room. We take a picture, and it's on the front page of the program, and we we sort of get to know each other. His name's Pat. He's a doctor, very successful doctor today. And Pat's like, well, what do you think about the season next year? I go, we're loaded. <laughs> we're loaded. And he goes, uh, so are we. And so uh, it, it was funny because the day we played Yale, and uh, I go out to the center for the flip. He, go, he goes, what do you think about today? I go, I got a lot of friends betting on us today. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I did. I, I'd, yeah. I'd call my knucklehead friends because I wasn't smart back then. I, I'd probably get put in jail today. But there was a lot of a lot of Vegas money mm. from Southern California on uh, Harvard that day. Mm. What what exactly is the process of becoming the lone captain of the Harvard football team, and how did that come about? Well, I, I would say, um, from my perspective, it was by design. By sophomore year, I was probably the best player on the team from my class. And I knew it. And I knew that uh, I probably was most fit to be the captain. So I started acting like a captain. And uh, I'd prefer to be a, uh, an introvert. But captains aren't introverts. They're more rah-rah. So I, I started acting like that guy. And I think that's part of some of the best leaders in the world are introverts that can act. And so I played I played the role. And... Uh, you know, the season's over and 90 people in a room and everybody gets a vote. And uh, there's Harry Cash, the the uh, offensive guard right next to me, was a stud and a great guy. And, you know, a couple of the guys got up and said, we have two guys that should be the captain. Let's do two guys. And, uh, 109 years, there's one captain. So make a choice. And uh, so I felt bad for Harry because I, I the voting was really tight, but I, I won the vote and uh, I was a captain. 
how, how much pressure the night before that game, your senior year, like, you know, you think you're going to win and you got confidence, but God, you're going to go down in the annals of Harvard football as yeah the winner or the loser. Right, right. And so, and it's, uh, you know, they create a real dramatic atmosphere. You have your final, final practice, you come in and they got candles out and every senior says a few words. And, uh, I, I'm choking up a bit because it's, it's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. And I'm telling you, I get up, say a few words, and uh, I was so, so nervous because for forever I'm going to be introduced as the captain that beat Yale or the captain mm. that lost to Yale. And at the same time, yeah, it was a big responsibility for myself and to, to guide the young guys. So I, I was really nervous. But, again, I, I was confident we were going to win, and, we did win. We won 45 to 7. Um, one of the most famous college games of all time because of the hoax is uh, in the second quarter. We had just scored our uh, third touchdown. We were up 21 0. I was uh, huffing and puffing. And about 10 yards in front of me, something pops out of the ground. And this machine pops out of the ground. And then all of a sudden, this big, huge black balloon starts getting inflated. And it, the balloon's huge. And so now I, I know that Adam's going to fact check me before I leave the building. <laughs> the best hoax ever in yeah. college football, you know, where you see guys, the, the, the Stanford fans, Stanford sucks, you know. Sure. This is considered the best. Wow. And the Yale, uh, uh, Yale fraternity for like uh, a month, every night would sneak into the stadium and put the contraption in and test it and do this and oh do that. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And, and not Yale, I'm sorry, MIT. Okay. And so on the balloon was MIT. And so the knucklehead next to me grabs a rock. I go, no, no, what if it's black paint? I'll get all paint. Throws it, and the thing pops. And, oh, man. And it was all over ESPN. And it, it was a really, really cool story. It's unbelievable. Yeah, okay. but it was MIT, and, and they, they went back, and, you know, like ESPN went and got the, the four or five guys behind it and interviewed them, and they made a big deal out of it. It was really cool. Oh, man. Very courageous. Having that responsibility, Greg, and handling that responsibility of being the captain in the Harvard-Yale game, how did that help you later on in life? That's a great question, and I think um, uh, it teaches me to be a great leader, you know, and uh, uh, Steve and I talk about leadership a lot. Uh, we, we always go back to what Lou Holtz says about leadership is you're evaluated three different ways. My people, Steve looks at me, his people look at me, and they – does Greg Brown care? Is Greg Brown committed to excellence? And can I trust Greg Brown? Mm-hmm. And um, I would tell you that all the football players on that team, uh, even the, the sophomores that usually get hazed, you know, I, I didn't allow that stuff. They knew I cared about them. And uh, when I went to uh, uh, business and I started moving up as a leader, uh, that that was my pillars, my three pillars I stood on. I've always stood on that. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable! I, just the balloon. That's unbelievable. All right, so I got to ask this question. Um, Harvard played Yale uh, a few years back at Fenway Park. Yes. You had not been back to a Harvard Yale game in 36 years, and I know you you probably got some hassle from some of your old teammates because I know when you went back there, you had probably the greatest time of your life. Thirty-six yards. How's that happen? Well, uh, Steve, for a guy that works fifteen hours a day, I think you could answer that. Yes. But life gets busy. Yep. And I was out in California, and I wanted to be the best at my job, yep. and I kept on grinding and grinding, and finally, I'm like, I've got to go to a game. But unfortunately, it's thirty-seven years later, right? Yep. And uh, I went there, and the guys just beat the crap out of me. You know, I can't believe it. This is the first game you've been back, and and, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of fun. They had their way with me that day. And I was like, God, this is great. I'm coming back again. <laughs> Probably be another 36 years, right? And Harvard won that day, right? Harvard won. Yeah. Nice. They, they, they beat them up badly. And what a great venue to watch a football game there. Yeah. Fenway Park. Yeah. yeah it, it was unbelievable. It's a bucket list item. Do you still stay connected with Harvard and all the athletics programs from afar? Yeah, but but definitely from afar and more of uh, my, you know, I've got friends from Yale or from Penn or whatever. 
hey, did you see we, we kicked your butt today, you know? <laughs> so I, I definitely get all the updates on that. And when Harvard Yale's playing on, on TV every year, I'm getting like 50 uh, text messages from my friends. And, and uh, every once in a while, they'll go to San Diego, the baseball team, and mm-hmm. a bunch of my friends will go to the game, and they'll be texting and, and telling me what's going on. So I, I, I try to stay connected and see how they're all doing there. We actually had Harvard here for a weekend series a couple of years ago for baseball. I think it was 2017, maybe 2016. So that was cool. Yeah. They traveled extremely well. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, they they, they get good baseball players. Yeah. Half half of our team was uh, hockey players. And mm. Canadians, uh, they're really good baseball players because of all the hockey. They're, they got strong wrists, quick wrists. Yeah. Then the other half of the team was football players because Harvard loved Love bringing in athletes that could play two sports because that means they have one less athlete in the school. Because mm. I mean, they're not all that committed to yeah. to sports, you know. Wow, unbelievable stories, huh? Really I good. didn't know that thing about the balloon. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, you you definitely have to look it yeah. up because it was a neat deal, and there's some great documentaries on it. You know, when when you graduate from Harvard, did you ever think about staying out east, or hey, I'm I'm going to graduate, I'm going back home i'm going back to california was there any thought about staying out east no uh, i'll tell you what i was uh again naive catholic boy i had to get back to orange county and so i started asking around and you know what are your what are your skill sets and well i'm a good leader and i'm pretty good in the bar you know i got game (laughs) in the bar and my friends are like well you probably should get in sales well what's the best sales company in california it's gallo wine gallo wine's got great recruiting great uh uh, training, and they're the Procter & Gamble of California. And so I, I got involved with uh, Gallo. It was intense. It was awesome. And I got to go back and live in Orange County where I grew up. I'd call on accounts, and everybody would hey, that's Greg Brown, you know. And so immediately I was successful, but I, I worked as hard as everybody else. But it turned out to be the right career because I trained for the beer business for a long time. And that <laughs> so so – I drank a lot of beer, even with Gallo, and I said, this is going to get me into the beer business. Unbelievable. How have you worked your way up, Greg, with Admiral Beverage? So, uh, you know, the Maloofs brought me out mm-hmm. 22 years ago because they wanted to build a casino. And uh, they, they, because of Garen, my brother, and Phil Maloof, uh, they knew who I was. And so they brought me in. I started running the beer business, and, uh, you know, things got a little bit tight when they built the third tower. And uh, 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 I think Wells Fargo put pressure on the Maloofs to sell. Kelly Clay bought it for uh, full price, probably $150 million. And this is 11 years ago. Kelly walked in and says, uh, I like your team. I like everything you guys stand for. Uh, we're not going to eliminate one position. We're just going to grow. And uh, back then, we generated $195 million of revenue. And today, we're about 295 wow. We're uh, we're killing it, and we're considered across the country one of the best distributors, probably one of the top three distributors in the country wow. right now. And it's because we got great, uh, um, we just got a great culture. Mm-hmm. People like to win. Uh, everybody props each other up. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's like a big football team where we all help each other out. You know. Steve, you ready for the uh, Coors Light <laughs> six pack rapid six questions yes, the for Greg? Rapid pick six six pack of ice cold Coors Light. Greg, give us one word to describe your good friend, Mario Mocha. Brilliant. Brilliant. Wow. I like it. Brilliant. You know, next time we see, I'm just going to call him Mr. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Give us uh, some advice that you would give to a recent New Mexico State college grad. Well, I, I would say, you know, that saying about vote and vote often, I'd say interview and interview often because the market is tough. But and people aren't hiring, but just keep on interviewing. Don't get down on yourself. You know we'll get through COVID, and uh, uh, just be confident, and things will get better. And by by the way, if there's anybody out there, a young person, that says you know I, I like the sound of Admiral Beverage, and I'm I'm a good leader, and I'm willing to work hard, we'd love to hire you. Come on board. No doubt. Uh, Greg, you're on a desert island by yourself. Um, you have an opportunity 
to drink a draft beer of Coors Light, a canned beer of Coors Light, or an ice-cold bottle of Coors Light? What do you choose? I'm always draft, and I'm curious. I'll ask you after this. Uh, what's everybody been answering? But I'm a draft guy. It's kind of been a mixed bag, I think, it's a little a big, bit. It's yeah. been a mixed bag, yeah. And um, I know Mr. Brilliant, Mr. Mario, I think he went with bottle. I think he, he did. Went with bottle, yep. yeah. Yeah, I've seen him walking around with a bottle of Coors Light off it. <laughs> there you go. In your mind, um, because, you know, Greg lives up in Albuquerque. Uh, he's not a Lobo guy. He's an Aggie guy for all my uh, Albuquerque buddies. But uh, why do you think Aggies athletics have been so successful over the last 10 years? Well, I, I just think uh, people try harder down here. I mean, you, you take a look at, at your budgets and uh, you got to try harder. And, and it just seems like it's more blue collar. It's just guys that... They're scrappers and they're fighters, and, and Mario's the same way. You talk to mm -hmm. people about the way he played baseball, and he, he was a scrapper. Matt Wisely, um, uh, one of our top executives, played baseball against Mario, and he says that uh, last week the, the home run that Mario hit off him finally landed. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I, I, I think it was a, a hanging curveball. <laughs> Number five. Greg, uh, great leaders do what? Well, they lead by example, right? And uh, let's go back to what Lou Holtz says. Is great, great leaders need to be trusted. They need to care about their people. And uh, they need to be committed to excellence. And just think about that. We've all had leaders in our life that didn't care about us um, or we didn't trust them. Mm -hmm. And I've had leaders that really weren't committed to excellence. They were just trying to get through the day. And Talk about not being motivating. When, when I had one leader like that, where I, uh, he almost, I almost quit Gallo because of it, because it, it frustrated me. Is uh, I have to win, you know, and and uh, he needs to have those three attributes. I love it. Toughest Ivy League team you you faced? It could be baseball or football, but who was your nemesis? It was a Yale baseball team, and uh, it was my. Freshman year, they had uh, they had their football running back who was a stud who played third base, and then they had a guy named Ron Darling that went mm, pitch yeah. pitched for the Mets, <laughs> and he had game he had game, and I I I I, I pitched against him twice that year, and uh, I couldn't beat him. And by the way, when he wasn't pitching, he was playing shortstop. He's like mm. one of those guys in wow. the old, old days that was did everything, you know. But uh, they they were a team that we couldn't beat. This has been epic. Yeah. This has been epic. We've talked about mortuaries. We've talked about <laughs> Ivy League football. Yeah. We've talked about beer. we talked about a little gal, a little Pistol Pete. Yeah. Epic. I really appreciate you having yeah. me on your show, Adam. Yeah, Thank Greg, you. thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, continued success with Admiral Beverage, and uh, hope to see you soon. Good. Thank you. Be okay. safe. This has been the Aggie Hour Podcast a bi-weekly podcast profiling Aggie Athletics, sponsored by Coors Light. The preceding has been a Learfield IMG College presentation of the Aggie Sports Network.